0: Okay, let's, uh, let's begin. this evening's talk I still want to circle around the question, which actually the question is the question posed as the title of this retreat. What is mindfulness? And perhaps come from a little bit more of a Buddhist answer to this question and place it within the context and then perhaps contrast it with the way it's often seen in the West. So hopefully by now, you've done a whole day's practice, you've survived a whole day's practice, Um, you're possibly starting to get a sense of what mindfulness is about. However, I want to come right back to its place within the Buddha's teachings. When I say the Buddha's teachings here, I mean specifically uh, the teachings that uh, really are very much part of the ancient tradition, Um, what I call early Buddhism, and Buddhism as we find it in some of the earliest texts. What we find in these earliest texts, just to give you a bit of historical background, is something very, very radical. It was radical in the Buddha's own time, which I'm not going to go into, two and a half thousand years ago, and it's still fairly radical now. The one thing that the Buddha didn't do, um, just placing him again in that historical context, was found a religion. Yeah. He, was very dis- he was very upfront about that. He saw great problems with the traditions that were there in his own time, so he wasn't really trying to found another religious tradition. He was extremely critical of religious traditions, particularly with all their dogma and ritual and sorts of things that he saw in his own time. And he also wasn't providing what I call cheap consolations. He was really taking a very almost steely look at life and saying, actually, life isn't easy. It isn't easy. And two and a half thousand years ago in ancient India, it would probably not have been terribly easy at all. Yeah, it still isn't in uh, you know, the countryside and outside of the more affluent cities in India, even to this day. So it would have been pretty tough in those days. And he formulated something with which mindfulness is very much a big part of. Mindfulness. Let's give you a kind of definition, and I'll work around this. Mindfulness is part of a strategy that the Buddha dedicated to what he called waking up. In fact, the very term Buddha, which is not a name, by the way, if you're not familiar with this, it's just an epithet, that's all. And it means one who has woken up. Yeah, that's all it means. It's derived from a Sanskrit Pali term, which means to wake up. And so what we have is a path which is Dedicated to waking up. It's interesting, isn't it? Waking up. There's a sort of, something implied in that phrase, isn't there? You know, the Buddha is one who's woken up. The path is dedicated to waking up. And sati, what we're translating as mindfulness here, is part of that strategy which is dedicated to waking up. There's something very implicit in this that's being really pointed at. Which is actually most of us sleepwalk through life. We sleepwalk through our lives. um, And that sleep, the Buddha identifies as being a sleep of confusion. A sleep of confusion, which gives rise from his perspective to some fairly aberrant behavior, yeah. to aberrant psychologies which give rise to aberrant behaviors. And so one of the little phrases that goes with this waking up is waking up to the way things really are. Again, that's a bit of a challenge, I don't know. It's not consolatory, is it? Waking up to the way things really are. Because we could fantasize how we would like things to be, and probably most of us do in some way or another, how we want our lives to be, how we want the world to be, and in many ways, putting it in scare quotes, these can be seen as fantasies. Mm -hmm. The world often isn't like that and we are not like that. And so when the Buddha is saying, waking up to the way things really are, it means really taking a very good, hard look at the way things are. Because if we don't wake up to the way things are, ourselves included here, the Buddha says that one thing is absolutely certain. And I'm going to put kind of two words together, one which is almost a traditional translation and another which isn't, is we're going to suffer distress. There's a lovely Pali Sanskrit word, which is the word dukkha, which covers this. In fact, so much so, this word is so important, I would actually say this is the one to impress on your mind out of of all of the rest, because there's no adequate translation of it. It's this word dukkha. It usually gets translated, which is why I say part of that little phrase I gave you is part of the standard translation. It's usually translated as suffering. Possibly seen it if you've ever looked at popular books on Buddhism or even introductions to these more mindfulness-based secular applications, and it refers to anything Buddhist, it says the starting point of Buddhism is the problem of suffering. In a way, that kind of slightly overdoes it. Because the word dukkha is much more of what I call a spectrum word. Now, I'm not going to do any, anything more around language tonight, and particularly the original languages. but this is really important, this one word. Because it's a spectrum word. And as a spectrum, one end of the spectrum might be something that we would term suffering. However... I have a feeling, and I might be wrong in this, but if I have a feeling, if I said to you, looking with a very gloomy face at you all and said, you're all suffering, you'd probably say, no, I'm uncomfortable. Didn't like the meal this evening. The weather's horrible. Oh, I've got Christmas coming up. There'd be a lot of things you wouldn't want, wouldn't there? things that you are having to deal with that you don't like, that you might call unsatisfying. And our life actually contains an awful lot of unsatisfactory things, doesn't it? At the very big end of the spectrum, there is suffering. There is no doubt about that. Most of us, as I think I mentioned earlier today, at some point in life will encounter what we might call the tragedies of life. Actually, some of these are just the existential realities. We will get old, we will get sick, and we will die. And those around us will get old, will get sick, and will die. That's the reality. That's actually something that's worth waking up to. (laughs) As much as we try to stave off these things, yeah, these are the inevitabilities of life. And actually, when we lose a loved one, it's a cause for grief. Yeah. It's a cause for grief, and it's something that might strike us as very tragic. Often it strikes us as very tragic, particularly when we lose somebody close to us who perhaps is very young, yeah. or a child dies. So these are the tragedies of life, but this word dukkha covers much, much more than that. It it covers some of the basic dissatisfactions, the distresses of ordinary day-to-day existence. I've said this so many times in this room, but I'll repeat it again because it's it's such a, a good analogy. I was very lucky in my early days of training in India to train with one of the Dalai Lama's teachers. And he had a lovely phrase, he said this word, dukkha, he says it wasn't like being stabbed, it wasn't really painful. He said, imagine this, it's like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Can you think about that for a second? Slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. It doesn't start off very painful, does it? Yeah? Just rubbing slowly. What happens? The skin starts to come off eventually. It gets more and more painful with repetition. What he's pointing at is that often a lot of these things are not really painful, are they? That we encounter in our day-to-day existence. The things that we encounter which we find distressing, unsatisfactory. But often we're engaged in repeating, almost with a compulsion to repeat, doing things in the same way. And as we do them, they become more and more unsatisfactory, more and more painful. There's a lovely term, you don't even have to remember this term, but the term actually for existence, just ordinary everyday existence in, in Buddhist languages, early Buddhist languages, is the word samsara which literally means wandering round in circles. Does that, ever, does that ever have any resonance for you? Wandering round in circles. Yeah. In traditional Buddhism, this gets interpreted as a cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. You know, we don't even have to go there. This is the rep- repetition that we engage in. We find ourselves in a situation It ends, and then we repeat it. There's your birth, death, and rebirth. Right there, right now, in what we do compulsively. So there's something habitual about this. And when I started off, I said, you know, this path of mindfulness as part of this strategy is dedicated to waking up, waking up to the way things really are and actually waking up to breaking the cycle of repetition. So much so, I will give you the one word you will probably all know It occurs in the OED, in the Oxford English Dictionary, the word nirvana. Yeah? The word nirvana often gets misinterpreted as some kind of mystical state. It isn't. It's very simple. It's a verb form in the original language. It simply means gone out or unbound, yeah, I won't go into the etymology of it, but it needs something like unbound. What do you unbound from? Habit patterns. Sati is dedicated, this mindfulness that we're engaging in is dedicated to the unbinding of repetitive habit patterns. The German poet Rilke once wrote, and said in one of his Duino elegies, he talked about the habit that moved in and didn't leave. Yeah, it's a wonderful description, isn't it? The yeah. habit that moved in and didn't leave. And we just keep repeating again and again and again. But Before I explore that a little further, coming back to this sense of dukkha. If there's anything that, you know... Um, any reason, real compelling reason, why mindfulness has found a home, I think, in in western, even therapeutic world, it's because mindfulness is dedicated to the alleviation of distress. And that's the Buddha's starting place. That's why he talks about Dukkha. This is our situation. This is partly waking up to the way things are. I think on a radical reading of the early Buddhist texts one could say that this world, this world that we live in, is constitutionally incapable of ever satisfying us. Big statement, isn't it? Absolutely incapable of ever really satisfying us, that's Dukkha. From the smallest to the biggest thing, yeah? From the smallest little irritations and things which don't go quite right in your life to the things that do go right. Even those are not enough. Have you noticed sometimes? You might strive very hard to get somewhere, to live somewhere, to get your career, to get the things that you want, the acquisitions that you require, you know, that you feel are going to make you happy. And they, perhaps I suggest, even then there's a feeling of hollowness about it, as if there's still something more to be got. You know? That's what the Buddha is talking about when he speaks about this term dukkha, a sense of dissatisfaction, of existential, Dissatisfaction with our lives, even when we acquire these things. And acquisition is a big part, as I was suggesting last night, so much so that we confuse it, this sense of having things, with being. You know, I am what I have. Yeah? But even when we get these things, you know, to quote Oscar Wilde from one of his plays, you know, there's nothing worse than not getting what you want than getting what you want. (laughs) Still leaves you with a feeling of dissatisfaction at the end of it. This is dukkha. Dukkha is part of the human condition. This is a very realistic look. He's saying human beings, for the most part, will never be satisfied because and I'm kind of paraphrasing and summing up a lot here that's dedicated or spread over a vast amount of teaching, that human beings are often looking outside for something to satisfy them. They're looking for someone or something or some career or some job, some position, some fame, some wealth to somehow satisfy them and it seems as if that doesn't happen even when we get there, even when we get those small things. Acquisition is such a huge part, particularly this time of year isn't it? (laughs) Enormous thing at this time of year, you know, the buying and distributing of goods, um, often for very good reasons, sometimes not but as if somehow happiness dwells in the objects themselves. The Buddha often likens this drive to acquisition, like a dog, he says, sitting outside of a butcher's shop who's thrown a bone that doesn't have any meat on it, but continues to chew the bone looking for nutrition. Is that what we do? Is that... You know, a metaphor, perhaps, for what we engage in, chewing the bone of objects, acquisitions, trying to find the nutrition of satisfaction in them. You know, I'll leave that for you to decide. I'm just going to throw out some ideas this evening and see how they land with you. Directionally, the Buddha says we're looking for satisfaction in the wrong direction. We're looking for it outside of ourselves, often looking for others to provide it for us. You know, we place a burden on the world to make me happy, which actually it's constitutionally incapable of providing. Really good reason for that. Yeah. One of, again, one of the things the Buddha says we have to wake up to, it changes. Have you noticed? Yeah. And that change is so much outside of our control. Not that change is always bad, but a lot of it, when it affects us, that we don't want, we feel destabilized by it. Yeah. If it changes for our good, fine. We, don't, yeah, we accept it, we embrace it. But if it changes in ways that we don't like, we feel is to our detriment, then we're somehow we're rejecting it. Whether it changes for the better or changes for the worst is outside of our hands mostly. It changes. This is one of the other things that we wake up to, is that changing. So if we're trying to find stability and basing our sense of contentment or happiness or whatever word you want to use on that, then actually the conditions themselves are unstable. As we know very readily, this world can change just like that. With cataclysmic events, you know, in terms of literally the earth changing, and tectonic plates moving, and the disasters that cause, the physical disasters. Economically, how things can so rapidly change. And these are mostly outside of our control. Yet we, again, look for our happiness and contentment on conditions which are outside of our control. I think there's a deep sense often of understanding that, but still in somehow putting a degree of misplaced faith in that those conditions are hold, going to hold enough for my lifetime, you know, for me to be somehow find satisfaction in this lifetime. So, two of the things that we're waking up to, I won't go into the third, we won't have time this evening, but two of the things we're waking up to is that sense, profound sense, of the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned things. I, things that change, conditions that change. And looking for satisfaction in those things looking externally as i've said so far for our happiness there the buddha brings us back to a sense of actually the only place that we're going to find this contentment this happiness i'll leave you to choose the word that you want to use which perhaps is to be found within ourselves yeah Not alone, but amongst others. But to be found within ourselves. And part of that is basically making a friend of our own minds. All too often, and you've heard me speak already in this very short period of time about one of our big facets, certainly here in the Western world, um, the inner critic. Yeah, that scathing inner criticism of how we're not good enough, how we'll never be good enough. It's almost culturally inculcated into us to think in those ways. It's not our fault. That's just the way, in a sense, we've been programmed. Yeah. And, and in that, when that's very highly developed, then even our minds becomes an enemy to us. Our thought processes become enemies to us. And there's yet another source of suffering. And that can really mean suffering in that case. When we find that even our thought patterns are ones that we don't want, we feel afflicted by them. And any attempt, it seems, and I'm painting a very pessimistic picture here, I'll brighten this up in a minute, (laughs) But any attempt it seems that we make to use the faculties that we know and have relied on and trusted to solve all of our problems in the world, just our, you know, the kind of problems that we encounter, as I suggested last night, don't seem to work when it comes to our own mental health. Yeah. Try thinking your way out of, of low mood. It doesn't work. Try thinking your way out of even a sort of heavier state, depression. It doesn't work. Or any strong emotional condition. Try thinking your way out of it. Yeah. Try telling yourself, I've got to cheer up. Yeah. It's like saying, I must pull myself together. When you've had somebody say to you, relax, what generally happens? It usually has the opposite effect, doesn't it? And so actually, trying to tell ourselves these things and even trying to rationalize our way out of these moods doesn't happen, doesn't work. However, the Buddha is really pointing to a capacity that is there within our minds, which can be, to use the word I've introduced today, rather than meditated on, a capacity in our minds that can be cultivated. Yeah. And that capacity that can be cultivated, not as a panacea, all too often, particularly now that it's got into the Western world, I see mindfulness portrayed as a kind of panacea for everything. It's going to cure all the ills of the Western world. That was not what it was meant to do, and it never can but it can certainly help us to deal with a lot of the problems. So it's part of the strategy, it's not the whole strategy. But it's a capacity that we have that can be cultivated and developed. Cultivated and developed to deal with our own minds. And to deal with that sense of dissatisfaction and distress that we often feel or encounter in ordinary life situations, just ordinary life situations. Mindfulness is there to, as that capacity of the mind, to help us to deal with that. Not to cure them, not to make thoughts go away. And what mindfulness does in traditional Buddhism, it brings us back radically to our own experience. Radically to our own experience. To what is actually going on. So remember this afternoon I said you've got to be interested. You've got to want to explore. Yeah? Got to want to explore your own minds. What to want to explore your own processes. It isn't always pretty what you see. but better to know it than not. Because sometimes that liberating, that unbinding that I spoke about from a habit pattern can be accomplished by seeing. It's a sort of seeing that frees often, freezes from patterns once they're truly acknowledged and seen there. Others have to be worked at in other ways using mindfulness, because mindfulness in the early tradition isn't one thing, it's many different things. Yeah. Many different strategies of helping us to deal with this thing that the Buddha speaks about and says, I only teach one thing. He says, I teach dukkha and the overcoming of dukkha. I teach that. Implying that if you want to know about something else, go and ask somebody else. <laughs> But that's what he teaches. He teaches the origins of our psychological distress and the overcomings of the origins of our psychological distress. Not distress in the big way, and you know what I call he's not going to say, actually, practice the path of mindfulness and you're going to overcome death. (laughs) No way. In the early text, the Buddha dies. He's not a god. He dies. He gets old. He jokes about it. He jokes about getting old. In one text he says to one of his attendants, uh, who's actually his cousin, he says, every morning this body is only kept going by being strapped up like an old cart. (laughs) He's getting on for 80, which is just a big figure in actually early Indian texts. And he's walked all his life walked around this particular part of northeast India teaching. So those things are not overcome. So don't expect mindfulness to stop you hurting when you cut yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not unrealistic. It's not, as I say, mysticism. But what it will do is stop you adding something. Because part of the diagnosis the Buddha comes to is not only do we have what I call inevitable dukkha in this world, unavoidable, inescapable dukkha, you know, I would still say it's unsatisfying and actually hurts when I cut myself, when I bruise myself, when I break a limb. That's going to hurt. That's dukkha. I don't think there's any way we can get around that. Yeah. I'm going to go old. That's dukkha. <laughs> in fact, I am aging. I'm going to die. That's going to be dukkha. Yeah. These are inevitable. Yeah, so it's not getting rid of those. But as we all know, there's such a difference in the way that we can hold those things, isn't there? So I'm going to put it in a very kind of crude way. How do you like your dukkha? straight? or with compound interest. Because we can add so much to it, can't we? And many of you will have heard this. It's a lovely analogy that the Buddha gives. He says, you know, there is a man and he's struck by an arrow and then forces another one into himself. (laughs) And that's actually our position a lot of the time. We're hit by one arrow of dukkha and then in a sense forcibly push, I wouldn't say just one, half a dozen in, you know, when you get angry, resentful, annoyed, all of those psychological conditions are actually our resistance to the what is happening, to dealing with the way it is. Does that sound familiar? No, of course not. None of you engage in any of that, do you? Mm -hmm. That's often what we're doing, though, isn't it? Adding to the dukkha. Not just dealing with it as it arises. We add to it. In fact, many ways, you know, for example, if it's, it's a piece of dukkha that's happened to us, somebody said something nasty years ago, sometimes it can be even more painful now with what I've added to it. So that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with that kind of dukkha. Being able to hold what is happening to us in a different way. Even the distressing thoughts themselves can be held in a different, different way. Because they are happening to you. Yeah. Actually, long-term meditators can be really bad people for adding them. This shouldn't be happening to me. I've been meditating for 20 years. This shouldn't be happening to me. Yeah, I shouldn't be having these thoughts. I shouldn't be getting annoyed. Well, forget it. It depends on how you approach them, how you hold them. This is the important aspect of what mindfulness is dedicated to. In its most simple aspect, and part of it is becoming, uh, in its early stages, becoming aware of what is going on. I don't know if any of you have experienced that even just today, just getting a greater sense of what is here. It might be just a greater sense in the initial stages of confusion, yeah, of an awful lot of conflicting emotions, conflicting feelings. It might just be tiredness. You've come... Out of ordinary life, and here I am. I've got this weekend to do a bit of a retreat, and there I find myself falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, that might be happening to some of you. Or I've come here, I really want to get the best out of it. My back's aching, yeah? my legs hurt, my knees are aching. Yeah? In other words, there's something about expectation, isn't there? there. Yeah, you come, you create the conditions and you expect something in return. Yeah. And you expect what you've idealised is going to be there. Instead, you get backache, knee ache, fall asleep, do all of these things. And what happens then? There's a feeling of, dare I say, dissatisfaction <laughs> with that whole process. However, that's what's going on that's what you have to deal with, the backache, the neck ache, the headache, yeah. the falling asleep. These are the things we're actually having to deal with. These are the things we have to deal with in ordinary life, aren't they? Yeah. Those are the things we have to deal with in ordinary life, just everyday stuff that comes on. The things that I don't like, don't want, these are the things I have to deal with. But what we have to wake up to is how those difficulties are magnified. How we can create them into bigger things than they actually are. That's what I mean by adding to the dukkha. That's, that's the second arrow that we place into it. The moment we move into resistance, often to sometimes the inevitable, A tendency to want to, in a way, argue with the inarguable. (laughs) I want to argue with life. I know who's going to be the winner, (laughs) generally, if I want to argue with life and the way it's presenting itself to me. Now this is not, I just want to add this in just in case you're getting a kind of impression this is just sitting and doing nothing. Because, actually, sometimes we can do things to change our situation. So this is not putting up with the unacceptable. You know, I really want to make that clear. If you can do something about it, do something about it. For example, don't put up with an abusive relationship if you can do something about it. Don't put up with a headache if you can do something about it. But there's an awful lot in life, and this is really what I'm trying to identify here, there's an awful lot of life that we can't do anything about. But we make ourselves ill, and I deliberately use that word, ill, and certainly very distressed when we approach it in the wrong way, yeah? when we hold those things in the wrong way, when there is anger and there's resentment and there's hatred and dislike. Or on the other side, when we're trying to avoid it all, and we're going off and Desiring things and wanting things and you know, trying to fill ourselves up in another way, that's just another pattern I mean why do we why do we crave? why do we crave things often, as going back to the quote I started with last night, often as Pascal says, you know when I come to this present moment, it hurts sometimes yeah. now. This is the starting place actually in general for these practices which broadly come under meditational processes, what I'm calling cultivation, is their ways of approaching and helping us to deal with this tendency. The tendency not to behave necessarily badly but to behave unskillfully when confronted When confronted often with the inevitable. Or to move into patterns of behavior which are self destructive. And let's face it, generally, unless we really, really are alone, most of our patterns of self destructiveness impact on others as well. Our self hatred becomes dislike of others, it becomes projected into aggressive behaviour, anger, all of these things. You know, so we don't just keep it to ourselves, do we? You know, when you're feeling upset and unhappy, you like to spread it around. <laughs> you know, why should the rest of the world be happy when I'm not? Uh, joking aside, uh, we can see how important this is then f- to start to learn skillful ways of dealing with this. And again in these early Buddhist traditions, mindfulness has identified as one of the skillful ways of learning to deal with what is arising with those destructive thoughts, with those destructive patterns. But first of all, and again, what is mindfulness? Well, it's beginning to see those destructive patterns. You might have even had a, a clue about this today. And sometimes get, people get very quick glimpses into this. I see the same old patterns of mind coming round and round again. Yeah? The same worry patterns, the same anxiety patterns, the same patterns of desire. Yeah? I see them coming round and round again. Yeah? And that's the wandering round in circles too. That we begin to recognize this patterned nature of our world. The Buddha gives most of this teaching on the approaches. It's scattered throughout this vast body of material in the early texts. There's one particular text which is dedicated to it, which is known as Satipatthana, the ways of establishing mindfulness. Yeah often called four foundations, but actually the word patana means to establish. Yeah, to four ways of establishing mindfulness, which are all there within your own experience. We've only been doing one so far. Yeah, I might introduce another one a little bit more briefly tomorrow. first one is body. <sighs> yeah, this is the first. This is, this is one way of establishing mindfulness. It's always accessible to you. In fact, the others are, but they get a little bit more subtle as we go along. This one is really obvious. This is you in the world, physical. Early Buddhism does not talk about, for example, consciousness being disembodied. Consciousness is always embodied. Yeah. Yeah. The French philosopher merleau Ponty once said, you know, the body is embedded in the world just as the heart is embedded in the body. Yeah. That's how much we're part of the world. We're in, literally in the heart of the world, yeah. you know, embodied. All of our understanding of our world comes through our senses, through our embodied senses. Yet so much of religion and philosophy over the centuries has denigrated the body and lifted us up into being just thinking things. Again, this is redressing the balance, bringing us back to our sense of embeddedness in this world. This is the first sight, the most obvious sight of our interaction with others. I don't know another other than through my body (laughs) and through the body of the other. So this is part of our connectedness. I know this world through my body. Yet we can be so, so out of touch with it. So these early practices are to bring us back to our sense of embodiment, to what is going on in the present. Because remember I made that little statement, this body is always a present moment experience. This breath which is part of this body. It's the body breathing. It's not just my lungs, it's the body breathing. It's a present moment experience. So this is a way when our minds get caught up, when we're drifting off, when we're involved in the throes of expectation and idealisation and when we're there dwelling in the past and that here is our anchor point coming back to this breath, this body in this present moment. Yeah? This is a way of anchoring ourselves back in that present. All of that is going to occur. It's going to happen naturally. So there's a tendency to want to escape it again, isn't it? Go off and escape. Get out, you know, when things are difficult, what do you want to do? You want to escape. Now, even if we don't recognise, often, there's huge difficulties going on in my life at the moment, and there might not be, and i really, you really know, rejoice for you if that's the case. But often there's a great still a sense of, oh, actually, things are not quite right. And it's almost at a subconscious level. And you still want to escape. Still want to escape. Often that's the escapism that we see. So, redolent, redolent in our Western culture, the desire to want to escape into things, literally to get outside of ourselves. The plethora of entertainments, the plethora of substances that we can take to, in a sense, blot out consciousness of pain, consciousness of distress. It's a way of anaesthetizing ourselves. The question you always have to ask yourself is, do I want to be anaesthetized, or just really engaged with life and its difficulties? Because, yes, anaesthetizing ourselves is an option. There's plenty of ways of doing it. I would suggest, though, that somehow we lose our lives in anaesthetising ourselves in that way. And anything can become addictive. And I'm not talking about the natural substances. I can talk about behaviours and I can talk about purchasing and doing all the things that we do. All of these become addictive and ways of anaesthetising ourselves to life's difficulties and life's pains but they also anaesthetise ourselves and I think this is, this is worth remembering because I've talked about mainly the difficulties but they also anaesthetise us to the wonders and the joys of life and it's almost like you don't get the one without the other you don't get the sense of the difficulty without the joys or the joys without the difficulties they come as a package here So if we anethatise ourselves in these ways, we anaesthetise ourselves to both in this. So waking up is waking up not just to the difficulties, but it's waking up to the joys. And I really would like you to take that away as as well as everything else I've said this evening. Because that's what we're really, really waking up to. In fact... I shall read you a tiny bit of poetry, which is uh, a poem by Rilke. Some of you might know It's out of one of his Duino elegies, which is the German language poet. Let me see if I can find it. First of the things he says in this poem, I won't read the whole of it. One of the first things he says is that we don't ever feel really at home in our interpreted world. We don't feel really at home in our interpreted world. There's a good reason for that, in Buddhist terms, is because that world is always interpreted through our minds. And if our minds are unhappy and our minds are distressed, our interpreted world will be an unhappy world. <laughs> a distressed world. It doesn't mean that there isn't pleasure and sometimes things that lighten and elevate us, but for most part you know, when we interpret the world with a mind that is distressed, we get a distressed world. Yeah. The philosopher Wittgenstein once said, you know, the world of the unhappy, unhappy person is completely different from the world of the happy person. Yeah objectively is not talking about two different worlds, (laughs) but two different sets of mind that interpret one world in this way. And of course that becomes a habit that moves in and doesn't leave, interpreting the world in that way. But this is where I really wanted to be because this is a much more positive thing. a very positive affirmation of our being in the world. He said, he says this, he said, the springtime needs you. Often a star is waiting for you to notice it. A wave rolls towards you. Something comes out of the distant past. As you walk under an open window, a violin yields itself to your hearing. All this is your mission but could you accomplish it? Weren't you always distracted by expectation? It's a real positive affirmation. Openness to what is, to what is there, what can uplift us in our world. Yet aren't we often so caught up in our patterns of thinking and distress that we miss those things? We miss being a site for the disclosure of those things in this world. Which are so important, aren't they? To really being here. Because we get so caught up in those distress patterns. We tangle ourselves up into a big knot. The Buddha says at one point, who's going to untangle the tangle? Implying certainly isn't me, because you are the only person who can untangle the tangle, yeah? untangle the knot that you've become in the course of your life. Again, this is all dedicated to answering that question: Well, what is mindfulness? When it's dedicated to really beginning to untie the knot, the knots of distress. Yeah? We often use that expression in English, don't we? You've tied yourself up in knots. <laughs> yeah. Here, the knots are very specific the knots of distress, knots of, of compulsive behavior, compulsive thought patterns that are an attempt to deal with what's presented to us but don't accomplish it skillfully. Yeah? So, at the heart of mindfulness is something else we tend to forget, something again I've kind of just slipped in occasionally today, is this learning to acknowledge what is there. most basic act of kindness you can give yourself. Yeah? Kindness isn't, for example, I don't know, indulging yourself. It might be great fun occasionally, pleasurable, but it's not necessarily always kindness. Yeah? Kindness, in this sense, is beginning to acknowledge who and what you are at this moment. So often we start off these sessions of cultivation, of meditation, by just, well, what's here at this moment? What's here? What's actually here? What What's going on in the body? What's going on in the mind? What's here? This is our starting place where we are, not how we'd idealise and like to be, again, fantasy, often. The only place we can start from is where we are. Mindfulness is about beginning to uncover where we are, to start to see those patterns. As I say, some of you might have seen some today, just around little things. Even just the pattern of knowing, for example, I normally distract myself if I get this feeling arising. Or this thing that I don't want to. Or another pattern, actually, that's really prevalent. Boredom. Ever had that one? Yeah. Boredom's really telling you a lot about your mind. The mind is looking for entertainment. Yeah. Distraction. Yeah. So we can discover these little things just by sitting still. Walking. Yeah, we can discover these things, we begin to see these patterns, and this becomes our starting place for then beginning to identify also the more positive patterns in the mind. Because what the Buddha is saying with this sati, with this mindfulness, we begin to uncover not just those patterns of unskillfulness, but we begin to see aspects of ourselves which are skillful. Yeah. The poet Walt Whitman once said, I never knew I had so much goodness in me. And he wasn't boasting. He was just literally, that was an exclamation, I never knew I had so much goodness in me. Why? Because we never look. What we look for and get caught into and become habitual are those other patterns, the distress signatures in our lives. And so the Buddha is saying we can begin to identify those. And then we've got a choice, haven't we? When you begin to identify what is wholesome and skillful in the mind, and you can begin to discern some of the unskillfulness and unwholesomeness, and those patterns which reinforce a sense of distress in this world, a feeling of uncomfortableness, dislike, dissatisfaction, however you experience it, but when we begin to see those two things, then we have choice. Remember I said earlier on today, you're always cultivating something. You're never not cultivating something. Yeah. When you have choice, you have a choice of what to cultivate. Do I want to cultivate let me give you the three big ones that I gave you today. Do I want to cultivate the psychology of greed, aversion, and delusion? Do you want to do that? Or when you can begin to discern them in your behaviours and your thought patterns, not there, present all the time, but they're there in your life. You know them when you can begin to see and identify those pat- you know, not so much patterns, but those arising sometimes instead of greed of generosity, and I don't mean just kind of money and stuff I mean a generosity of spirit that really can be with another, for example to have empathy for others in distress yeah. that's a real generosity, not giving stuff That's relatively easy comparative to giving of yourself. When I can begin to identify instead of aversion, dislike, even hatred, there's so much in the world we can dislike, isn't there? What is there that we can really begin to show compassion and kindness towards? When you can begin to identify that, because I'm sure you probably all do it with your families, with people who are close to you, You're generous and you're kind, loving, compassionate. These are not unknown to you. And finally, instead of this confusion and operating out of confusion, we can perhaps get clearer and be able to clearer see and identify ways of understanding things which will feed into the other two, into the generosity into the kindness and the compassion in life. We have the choice then, don't we? What do you want to cultivate? Do you want to cultivate greed, aversion, and confusion, delusion? Or do you want to cultivate the generosity, the kindness and compassion in your life? Or, and the understanding, often referred to as wisdom, in your life that's your choice yeah. and in Buddhist psychology all of our psychologies arise these are called three, you know, six roots three unwholesome roots three wholesome roots all of our psychology can be traced to these three roots in Buddhist psychological understanding yeah. so you look at irritation, it's aversion yeah. you look at lust it's there to greed yeah. so most of our yeah, Most of our psychological conditions can be traced to these three roots. So, that's your choice. What do I want to cultivate? And that's the question you have to ask yourself when you enter into doing some mindfulness. Now, one might go into mindfulness with a specific issue that you want to deal with. Anxiety, depression, distress. The sort of things that we see used for clinical applications today often, but it might be this bigger Buddhist sense, and this is what I'm really trying to give you a picture of this evening, the bigger Buddhist sense of wanting perhaps to see a bigger picture. Yeah, you know, that particular form of distress, even if you suffer from it, is embedded in a larger sense of dissatisfaction. The Buddhist vision is dedicated to dealing with that larger sense of distress, dissatisfaction, Unsatisfactoriness, suffering, whatever you want to call it, and beginning to liberate ourselves from the patterns which perpetuate it. And perhaps in the cultivation of the garden of your mind, cultivating the blooms rather than the weeds. (laughs) That's the choice here. And that is what mindfulness is dedicated towards, towards that overcoming. Okay, I think I'll finish that. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.